You're listening to the Adventist on Fire podcast, aofire.org. Medical centers, orphanages, guns, grenades, extreme generosity, and a number of miracle stories are coming right up. Here with Kim Buzel, we spend a full 40 minutes discussing what life was like raising kids in a mission field. Kim, it's good to have you here again, and I'd uh, love to talk to you about your family, and uh, you've been in Africa now for how long? Uh, first, nice to be with you again, Kyle. Always a blessing. Um, we went to Africa in 1983 to Zambia. Um, we had a call to work at a little mission project called Riverside Farm Institute. Okay. And you've been there ever since? No, no. We've been in Africa about um, about 20 years, 15 straight, and then uh, we were away for a while, and now we've been back for about five. Um, in 1983, when we went, our eldest son um, turned two after we got there, and our youngest son was three months old when we arrived in Africa. And so that was where they grew up and um, where they got a lot of their reference points for for life. What did I do at Riverside? What did I do at Riverside? Yeah, and what does Riverside do? Oh, Riverside's um, a fairly comprehensive place. We've got a training program. Uh, medical missionary work is the... Is the you know, normal term we use, but um, we train young people in evangelism. We train women in tailoring. We have an agricultural training uh, program, and then we have a lifestyle educator course. Uh, that's what we offer for, for like post-secondary training. Uh, Riverside operates a commercial farm that generates the income needed to, to do all the work that we do. So we grow a lot of soybeans and wheat and bananas and wide variety of vegetables. We run a walk-in clinic, just a regular medical clinic. And then we have a wellness center that uh, takes people 10 days at a time. And, you know, they may come with hypertension, diabetes, you know, heart disease, addictions, obesity. And so we help people with these lifestyle diseases. Riverside's located just one hour south of the capital city of Lusaka. And so we're strategically located to, to, to be close enough to um, be of good use to yep. the folks living in the city. How many staff? Well, it's probably 200 people living at, at Riverside. Wow. We have, you know, on a regular day, you'll have at least 100 workers. And then if we're doing a big project, you might have two, three hundred workers on the farm. So that's a big property with lots of houses, or one. Yeah, no, it's a lot of big property, five, uh, three thousand acres. Though we don't use all of it, and we, you know, everybody's has their homes. Um, not all the workers live on the farm, yeah. but a good number do. Cool. And what was your role there? Uh, originally, I uh, started out as the business manager, and then I became the farm manager, and then very quickly. Um, due to circumstances of other missionaries leaving, uh, became the executive director. And uh, that's pretty much what I did the whole time we were we were there. What was your time for that the other day, promotion? The promotion by desertion is what it was. Um, the missionaries that had been there for 12, 13 years, they were looking forward to returning to the States when the new group arrived. And so they laid plans after, you know, overlap of getting responsibilities and duties transferred, they all returned to the United States. And then um, out of the 24 people that came in a fairly short period of time, at the end of two years, um, Joyce and I and the two boys were 
the only ones remaining out of that group of 24 that came. So hmm. uh, promotion by desertion was great. It wasn't anything to do with you. Push them all away. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I was the youngest in the group, so yeah. uh, they all had different reasons for yeah. returning. You know, people travel overseas. They have an idea, and and they definitely have a burden and interest to serve, but it's not always a good fit. And so your son's growing up in this environment. Sure, they grew up there. It was great. They homeschooled. They had, you know, mother, mother taught them their ABCs and one, two, threes and all that in the morning. And then in the afternoon, they were free to work with me on the farm or, you know, often we'd go out and start new projects and and, uh, just get a piece of land from the chief and we'd have to build houses and put in gardens and they would participate in those activities. Hmm. So what were your hopes and dreams for them that they would go back to America and live a safe life or yeah. what? Well, you know, when you're young in your 20s and you have children, um, when they're young, you're just kind of concerned about their health and their well-being. And uh, primary school is pretty easy. But, um, you know, our desire for our boys is that they would fall in love with the Lord and they'd have a heart for service and whatever form that took would be fine with us. Yeah. And so what did happen when your boys got old enough to start making their own decisions? Well, um, yeah, we just praise the Lord they did get old enough. Malaria was a big problem back at Riverside in the 80s, and and our family has had its uh, good share of malaria. Malaria is still the number one killer in the world. Uh, more people die of malaria than any other single disease. And and um, our boys were getting it so frequently, especially Jabel, our eldest son, that as we were pioneering a new project up in Tanzania named Kibidula, uh, we found ourselves being based more and more up there to help that project. And the, the elevation was 6,500 feet, so the mosquito count was down, and it was a much healthier environment. We, we had almost lost Jabel um, a couple of times, but one very seriously came very close to dying from the malaria. Hmm. Um, so Kibidula was a, was a place where he could um, regain his strength and without a high risk of malaria. How old was he when he was that sick? Um, it is anywhere from um, 10 to 14. Those years were the heaviest. And um, at Kibidula, we, as we started the training program, uh, different families joined us. Um, it was a very unique setup. We, the union asked us to come and start this ministry, and we had no finances, no resources to draw from. We had to start from scratch, and we put out a, you know, um, a call to people, and we said, you know, we need help. And if you believe God's calling you to Kibidili, you need to be able to fly yourself to Africa, build yourself a house, pay yourself a monthly allowance, or raise it somehow, because we really have no financial base to launch this thing with, um, which is the step of faith. And families joined us, and one of those families, the Dysingers, had uh, worked in Sudan in the years past. And so as they came, they brought from some students from South Sudan to you know, enter the training program there at Kibidula. And often on Friday evenings, we would have Vespers in our home, and after Vespers, the different students would share what their experience was. And um, South Sudan was just filled with tragedy in those days. It was in the 
midst of a civil war, uh, about 23 years. It was the longest civil war in contemporary history, ongoing. And these students had suffered tragedy beyond um, what most of us can appreciate or understand. And um, one night after those students shared their, their experience and went home, Jabel came to us and he said, um, I want to go to South Sudan and help those people. And um, How old was he? He was 15 at the time. Right. And uh, Joyce's response was, well, you know, Jabel, South Sudan's a very dangerous place to go. And he looked at us and he says, well, just because it's dangerous, does that mean people don't need to know Jesus? And, um, you know, what do you say to a 15-year-old who's got that burden? You've raised him with the hope and desire that he'll have a heart for service. And, and all we could say was, well, at 15, they won't let you go. And the day Jabel turned 18, he uh, headed north and uh, went to Kenya through Uganda, and he was up in South Sudan. And um, thus was, you know, fastened in his heart a burden for the people up there uh, with the Civil War still raging. And somehow he managed to get his younger brother in there with him. Jared was 17 at the time. And his cousin Caleb, who had grown up at Riverside with him, they had, you know, got open the way for them to go up and start building schools and churches and agricultural projects in the middle of the Civil War. Wow. Um, very challenging, um, unimaginable for, for most teenagers. Um, and how does that affect you guys as parents at that time? Well, it was, it was tough, you know. Um, by that time, I guess we had uh, accepted a call to OCI and we had relocated in the in the United States. Um, and so I was president of OCI when, when the work in South Sudan started, we were still coming back to Africa very frequently, but it was a, it was a challenge, um, you know, to let your sons go up, there's bombs dropping, there's landmines, there's troops moving the, They would get stopped in a, in a, Rebel guerrilla would stick an AK-47 in their head and and order them around and tell them what they're going to do. And um, I can't say we were not without anxiety. At the same time, this was a burden the boys had. They believed God was calling them to this work, and they were equipped better than some others to do the work. And so we didn't want to stand in the way for a moment of the call that God was putting to their hearts. And so we supported them in that. And um, they had a lot of challenges. You know, they had a seven-ton truck that they used to haul building supplies. And, and as they were going, you know, a commander came out of, the, out of the bush with his soldiers, stopped the boys at gunpoint, and they loaded all their grenade launchers and their machine guns and all their armor, and they all jumped in the truck. And Jable just had to get out and explain that um, their role was not to participate in the war. And, um, you know, a lot of shouting, a lot of, you know. Did they speak the language? Or? No, they didn't. Um, they had translators, and, and a lot of the commanders would either speak English or uh, the boys would have a translator with them. And he would just explain, I, I can't transport you. I can't, I can't do this. We're building schools. We're building churches. We're here for the people of South Sudan. But we cannot get involved 
in the war. And, you know, through the Holy Spirit's working, the influence of angels, each time, one way or another, the the soldiers would eventually get out and the, the boys would carry on with their work of building the schools and churches. So they didn't just steal the trucks? And- no, fortunately, which is amazing because they obviously they could have just thrown the boys out and taken all their equipment. And um, just a little while ago, I was with my nephew Caleb and uh, learned a new story I hadn't learned of before. Caleb was out with the truck one day alone, and and he had some of the South Sudanese staff with him. Uh, one of them was their cook. And as they were going along, they got stopped, which wasn't uncommon by um, a soldier. And he started to demand that... Uh, they used the truck to transport troops, and, you know, at first Caleb was very humble and trying to explain his way, we don't do this, and the man was very aggressive, so Caleb became more firm, and then he realized, you know, there was nothing he was going to do that was going to dissuade this guy. And so finally the guy just pulled the pin on his grenade, and he held the grenade underneath the wheel well, and he looked at Caleb and he said, are you afraid to die? Because I'm not. And either you get out of that truck and give me this truck or I'm going to blow it up. And um, Caleb knew he was serious. And he knew he was out of any capacity to reason with this, this guy. And at that moment, young lady, the cook, jumped out of the truck, went up to that guy and in a local language, just lit into him. I mean, just like a hornet, man. She just buzzed around him and laced into him. And Caleb stood there, you know, mouth open, just totally dumbfounded at what she was doing. And after about five minutes, the guy pulls the grenade back up and he puts the pin in the grenade and and the cook gets back in the truck and and they go on their way. And so Caleb, having not understood at all what was going on as they got down the road, he looked at the cook, he says, what happened back there? She says, well, when I found out where he was from, my uncle is the commander of that base. And I told him, okay, you do this. And when we get to the base, I'm going to go to my uncle. And I'm going to explain to my uncle what you have just done here. And you are going to have to live up to, the, to, to what you have done. And, and just straighten the guy right out. He, you know, she knew the right name. And he knew that this was indeed her uncle. And he knew that he was doing something he shouldn't be doing. Because the boys had been cleared not to have to be involved in the war. Hmm. Um, every, you know, most of the leaders in South Sudan knew that. And um, so it was a very stressful time, you know, as they, they faced these situations ongoing. Um, but they, they made agreement with the, with the rebel leaders that when they got this school done, that any children that were enrolled in the school could not be taken into the army. Because they were taking children from 10, 11, 12 years old, boys. They would just come through the village and come through the community and take them all. And they would train them and then put them in the front lines. And so when the school got built, they had about 600 primary school students in the morning uh, doing classes. And then they had another 600 secondary school students in the afternoon doing classes. And as long as those boys' names were registered in, you know, on the school roster, then the rebel forces could not force these children into the war because they knew themselves that when the war's over, we're going to have to have some men around. 
And we, we just can't let them all be killed in the Civil War. And um, about a year or two after, while they were still there working and had the school going, uh, John Garang, who was, who was the leader of the rebel movement in, in South Sudan, came through for a political rally. And um, during that rally in that area, he said, um, he made an amazing appeal. He said, when South Sudan gets freedom, we want the Seventh-day Adventists to be responsible for the educational system in our country. Mm. Because these boys have come here, and they've built schools, and they're the only ones that have come believing that South Sudan has a future, being willing to build permanent buildings for our children so our children can have an education. Mm. And so it was a real testimony, um, what they did. Uh, up there in the middle of that civil war. Amazing. I can imagine if somebody had an AK-47 to my head, it'd leave me with some long-term damage, at least mentally. How, yeah. have, how have they had the resilience to want to uh, stay in that environment? Yeah, amazingly enough, um, you know, I, I wish I could tell you they were never hurt, they were never harmed. That, that wouldn't be true. The last trip our son Jared made up uh, a few years ago, um, he saw a woman being abused and screaming and pleading for help and it was soldiers that were doing it and he jumped into the middle of that mm. to help the lady and, and he got a proper beating he mm. got a, he got uh, hurt more than he liked let me say that mm. and so when you're faced with with tragedy and, and difficult decisions you know there is a price there, there's a price to be paid but um, no Jabel and Jared and Caleb they're you know, they're growing up young men, and, and um, uh, God's given them wisdom on how to behave. And uh, so I, I don't see any significant damage. Um, we, had, we were assailed upon, understandably, by several of our friends. Mm. These kids were 18, 17, 19 years old. And it was incredulous to them that as their parents, we would allow them to do this. Um, how can you allow these kids to go up there and do that? And I said, would tell them, well, you know, do you think I like it any better than you do? That that they're living in these circumstances, that they're living in these dangerous conditions. I said, but it's far more dangerous to stand in the way of God's call when you've raised your children to serve. And and now that's what they want to do. And they've got a burden for these people. And so, you know, Joyce and I would pray, and, and Alan and Pauline, uh, Joyce's sister and husband, we would just be in prayer for our children, believing and trusting that uh, God was going to look after them. And, yeah, I'm sure when we get to heaven, we'll see where the angels were able to step in on all those occasions. Amen. Amen. So what are they doing now? Are they still in the jungles? or? Um, no, Jabel, um, we, we had created at that time uh, an NGO, a nonprofit called Frontline Builders. And um, it, was for them, it was for them to be building churches and schools in remote places, difficult places. And then you up going from South Sudan, they've built churches in Mongolia, schools in Chad, um, Zambia, Tanzania. They've, they've built schools and churches all over. And um, when they were building in Chad... It was a multi-story building, and Jabel realized he didn't have the tools he needed to design the building and to erect it, and he had to hire engineers to, to do that. And at that moment in time, 
through that experience, he decided that he wanted to become a civil engineer so that he could build larger buildings, multi-story buildings, he could build bridges, and he would understand structural strength and what it takes to build one of these safely. And so eventually he found himself back in the United States and, um, and did civil engineering. And um, so he did that and he worked for a couple of years. And for the last three years, he and his wife, Michelle, and their four children have been back at Riverside Farm in Zambia. And he's the executive director there. Um, Jared, our younger son, he's 34 now, he's in Kenya. And during his years in Kenya, he's built schools and orphanages, done many, many water projects. And um, he's been helping us. I say us, Joyce and I, as we work with projects in Kenya. He's helped us to get construction projects and water projects completed. Mm. Do they have any regrets? Do they wish that they grew up in a safe, comfortable uh, place to build an empire in in the States? Yes. Yeah, so far, they you know they just love ministry they love africa they love the people and um yeah it's been a joy for them to be involved hmm. do you guys have any regrets bringing your children up that way oh, i tell you it's been you know the lord has watched over us he's provided for us um it's been the greatest blessing and privilege that we could have ever hoped to to participate in was there ever a situation where you thought that this is too much. This is this is the big one. This might be time to pull away from this sort of work. Or um, the closest I probably ever came to that was was when Jabel almost died of malaria, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't that there was any regrets. It was just as you see the life of your son being pulled out of him as he's battling this. It's a very as a parent, there's probably you don't have more agonizing moments than that. And we just praise the Lord that we were close enough to um, a Mission Hospital, an Adventist Mission Hospital, where we had very dear friends that were missionaries, and they, um, you know, God worked through them to save his life. His hemoglobin was below five; you can't measure it once it's below five. And he had been having black water fever, and. Um, needed blood and so they checked our blood types and they took blood from my wife and gave Jabo a transfusion and and we just praised God within two days he he was on the mend and uh, the doctors came to us and they said you know if you had waited another four or five hours before getting here there'd have been nothing we could do to to save your son Mm. and so would we have had regrets we would have been heartbroken for sure but um, yeah Hmm. We're, we're just uh, count ourselves blessed to participate in ministry. I'm wondering, um, yeah, often in these fly and build projects, people will come in, would build a clinic or refresh a clinic and then fly out again. It's not often easy to see the fruit of the ministry. If you hang around for long enough, what, what sort of fruit? Oh, you know, it is so wonderful. We've been, you know, for many years involved in one day churches, one day schools, building clinics and, and, um, Clinics, like you say, where doctors, dentists, nurses come in and and they serve for a week or two, and uh, then they go. And, you know, to relieve suffering, um, people are so grateful. They're so appreciative. And that type of work, even though it's for a moment of time, the people who have been in agony, 
I mean, in Africa, in, in, in any of these countries, if a toothache is, is a miserable thing to have. I don't know if you've ever had one. I've had my share. And there's not a dentist for 500 kilometers, 1,000 kilometers. These people are never going to have opportunity to see a dentist. And so when a dentist comes to the area, and, and we have a free dental clinic at Riverside, a mobile truck that's outfitted with two dental chairs, great setup. Um, and dentists come for a week or they come for two weeks, and we go out into the bush and people get served. The relief that they have, the appreciation they express, the thankfulness is just wonderful. And so uh, be it short-term or long-term, um, it's a blessing to people. And of course, the clinics function. The schools operate long after the, the flying build group is gone. Um, children are in those classrooms. They're getting a Christian education. They're having opportunities that will uh, open doors to their lives that they would have in no other way. So we're in the middle of 2017 right now recording this, but what, um, what ministry possibilities exist currently? What could people get involved in if they were looking to invest their lives in? in well, in Kenya, we're working with Kingsway Preparatory School. It's a wonderful project out in Londiani. They need classrooms. They need a cafeteria. They need a girls' dormitory. And um, miracle how this ministry began. Uh, we have Anchor Orphanage in, in Zambia that we work very closely with. And a young lady from Australia, Amy Jackson, who was an Arai student, came over for three months. She was a wonderful blessing. Again, Anchor needs infrastructure. They need help. Um, we're starting an orphanage in, just south of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. It's called Dunia Yaheri. Um, uh, Thomas Busel, uh, not Busel, Cusel. My name's Busel. <laughs> His name's Cusel. Thomas Cusel from Austria. His wife, Beat. Uh, they're down there putting up the structures to have an orphanage. And I was there three, four weeks ago. They have four little children, orphans that they're caring for, um, but they need to put the infrastructure in. So mm-hmm. just off the top of my head, you know, those places. And then there's the Kids for Him in Zambia, where the Moody's are, an Australian mm-hmm. family, uh, leading out with that work. They would be grateful any time, any day, for any length of time to have volunteers come over and mm-hmm. give them encouragement and, and help them in the work that they're doing. I guess the majority of the work is really grinding it out. It's a, yeah. it's a slow process. But you shared a story the other day that I'd like you to share here about um, a God moment where somebody came into your camp and just, uh, was it a broken down truck and they needed some help? And then Oh, yes, yes. That was amazing. There was a family from Iceland that had um, taken a contract in Namibia, which is on the west coast of southern Africa. And after their contract was over, they had this uh, GMC Suburban, I guess it was a Suburban, four-wheel drive vehicle from America that they had brought. And they were going to drive all through Africa, up through Europe to Denmark, put their, put their GMC on a boat and back to Iceland. So here they were. There's a, a road that goes from the center of Africa out to the Indian Ocean. It ends in Dar es Salaam and starts in the middle of Zambia. It's called the Trans-African Highway. And so here they were on that highway, and they're traveling through the bush of Tanzania, and their engine broke down, just seized, couldn't move. And it was towards the end of the day, so they just slept in their, in their vehicle. And in the morning when they woke up, 
they had a crowd. You know, they're just out in the middle of nowhere, but they had a crowd of people around looking in the windows and wondering what's going on. And and they started tried to work on the vehicle, and they realized they didn't have the tools that would you know help it to get going. And uh, so finally, um, a Land Rover came along with some Tanzanian fellas in it, and uh, they stopped and asked them what their problems were, and. And eventually said, well, well, we'll tow you. We know someone who's got a vehicle like you, and we'll, we'll tow you there for a price. I, I forget what the price was. And so they chained up this, you know, Suburban to this little Land Rover pickup, and uh, they started up and down, up and down, up and down, out of the Rift Valley and over the hills, and um, hour after hour, you know, going very slow along this highway. And finally, towards the afternoon, the... The Land Rover pulled them off the main road onto this dirt road that got narrower and narrower, and it went deeper and deeper into the forest. And the there's a few horror movies that are laid out of this storyline. The, the mud holes got deeper, and uh, here this this father, he's there with his wife and his two children. He realizes I don't know the people in this Land Rover, and I'm chained to them, and they're dragging me further and further away from from the main road into this forest and he started to get very anxious and wondering was this a good idea but there's absolutely nothing he can do he's chained to this Land Rover and so finally after about probably 45 minutes on this road they came to a clearing and a farmhouse and as they were being pulled in one end of the, the cleared area I drove up from the other end hmm. and we kind of met right near the farmhouse and and that was place was Kibidula where we were living in Tanzania and so he was greatly relieved and I got out and he got out and his family got out and and uh, the guys in the Land Rover got out and um, he, he was thankful he was somewhere where he could receive some help and um, so he got out, and as we're talking, he took out a pack of cigarettes and offered all of us a cigarette, and nobody took one except his 15-year-old son. And um, it was clear they needed a place to stay, and, and the, the leaders of the project, uh, Daniel and Ellen Butler, were away on furlough. And uh, so we just moved them into Butler's farmhouse um, and set them up. And as we tore his engine apart, and we have a mechanic shop, and um, as we tore his engine apart, we really the engine was seized and there were parts he needed from America so he ended up being with they, that family ended up with us for seven weeks <laughs> and um, it was really interesting because you know when we moved to Ben we're unloading cases of beer and you know and uh, as they were with us for a few days they were just really confused with who we were and what we were doing I mean, here are people, they don't drink coffee, they don't drink beer, they don't smoke cigarettes, they don't eat meat, they don't, you know, like they never met people this strange before. Um, Joyce and I and the boys were starting to branch Sabbath school several kilometers away, and, and on Sabbath morning, uh, the man's wife and his little girl would go with us, and soon she was learning, you know, Jesus loves me in Swahili. And um, we had Bible studies, you know, in the evening, and she would join in and very became very interested in spiritual things. And eventually, as we went to town, you know, they stopped buying beer. And um, about two weeks into it, the, the 15-year-old son came to me. He says, you know, 
Um, I really like to stop smoking. I don't think it's a good habit. Could you, could you help me? And we said, sure. We'd be more than happy to help you. And so um, during these seven weeks, we really bonded together. And they grew very appreciative. And, but finally the park came back, and we helped them with rebuilding the engine. And then, so the day came when they left. And uh, we said our goodbyes and wished them well and uh, told them we'll be praying for you. And, and they went on their way. Have you Just back on the mechanic stuff, because I play with cars myself, do you actually have a mechanic there or you guys yes, do it Yes, no, we did. I, at Riverside and at Kibidula, we, we have someone who's somewhat skilled <laughs> in, in mechanics. Uh, Riverside, very skilled. And, and they can do full rebuilds? Yes. We, I mean, if you don't do it yourself, you certainly don't trust somebody else to do it. Mm. You know, we would never send our vehicles somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, they'd come back. With most things missing, <laughs> okay, you just, you know, you might uh, get what you sent it to be fixed, or you might not. But then you find out they swapped out your brake shoes, they swapped out your starter, they swapped out, you know, and and no, it's just not a good idea to leave your vehicle in anyone yeah. else's hands. Because that's just a wild thought for me to know that you rebuilt an engine in the middle of the jungle. And oh yeah, yeah, no, our kids, in fact, our sons and our nephews, all four of them, um, they're all mechanics. Yep, and. Um, and uh, Joshua, our nephew, he's an airplane mechanic. So up in South Sudan, he'll drop his transmission, take it apart himself, you know, just right there. Just a school uh, you need to have. Yeah. So, so anyway, eight years goes by. Um, Joyce and I are serving at the leadership of OCI and visiting ministries around the world. And we'd been met a lady from Iceland when we were having a convention in Norway and she'd been pleading with us to come and to, to look at the needs in Iceland and see if we couldn't get some ministry going there. And um, so eight years later, after this happened in Tanzania, Jabel and Joyce and I are flying to Iceland. And we got to start talking about this family, you know, and how nice it would be to find them again. You know, we just, eight years has gone by. We've never heard a word again. We can't remember their names. And there just really is no way to... To locate them. Yeah. And so um, we got there Friday noon. I got to clear. <clears throat> so we get there Friday noon. And um, that evening for Vespers, Jabel's going to go one direction with a youth group. And he's going to share a presentation at a church in one location. And then Joyce and I go with our host, Unard, to another um, church family location. Uh, to share a Vespers program. And so we have the program, and, and I share whatever I was speaking on. And at the end of the meeting, um, one of the women in the congregation came up to me, and she says, you know, I'd really like to talk to you um, alone, if possible. And uh, I said, yeah, we, we can visit. You know, we'll just sit in one corner of the sanctuary and and visit. She says, well, something happened to me, and I'm impressed to share it with you. I, I really don't want to share it with anybody else, but I, I just feel I, w- I want to share this with you. And I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. That's not really an unusual thing. And she begins by saying, um, six years ago here in Iceland, we stopped doing in-gathering. And in-gathering is when you take a brochure and you go door-to-door in neighborhoods and you show them the relief work that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is involved in. And then that gives them an opportunity to give a donation if they would like. And, and most people I'm familiar with in America, they're not sad that 
they don't do in gathering. Yeah. In gathering is kind of like a punishment for for most of the congregation. <laughs> so as she's telling me this, I'm just kind of that's an interesting thought. And and she says, but you know, we really weren't happy about not being able to go in gathering. So this year, a small group of us decided we're going to do it. They rebelled, and we yeah, they rebelled, rebelled, and 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 she says we printed up these brochures, and last night, which was Thursday night, this was Friday night. She says last night we traveled out to a small town, you know, about forty five minutes from where we were, from the capital city, and she said so we decided to start in that town, and we were going door to door, and she says and I knocked on this one door, and. Uh, I started to tell the lady, you know, about our relief work and what we did. And and before I could finish, this lady looked at me very intently and she says, are you an Adventist? And she says, I was quite taken back. I said, yes, I'm an Adventist. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? And she says, yes, I'm, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And the lady says, oh, good. I want to give you money. Eight years ago, we were stranded in Africa. And our vehicle broke down, and we stayed with these Seventh-day Adventists, and they took care of us, and I've been trying to find an Adventist all these years. <laughs> and the lady is telling me the story. Yeah. And, and um, as I'm listening, I just, it's just unbelievable. And um, so I let her finish her testimony. She's so excited about what happened to her. And then I said to her, well, you know, sister, the family she stayed with was us. We were living in Tanzania. And we wanted to find these people. I said, do you remember the house? She says, of course I remember the house. I could never forget the house. And uh, when we got home that evening, Unard looked up the address, because the lady remembered the address, in the phone book. And she, because she had the address, she could find the phone number. And um, she called the residence. And sure enough, it was this family. And so we arranged uh, to go visit them on Sunday. And uh, when we are speaking Friday night, she said... Um, Sorry, my husband left today. He's a fisherman, and the boat goes out for two weeks at a time. So he won't be back, but I'll call my son, who's married and lives nearby, and my daughter, and and we'll all be together so we can can meet Sunday morning. Hmm. And um, so we say, oh, that'll be great. So Sunday morning, we arrive. I go up. I knock on the door, and the husband opens the door. And I was totally surprised. And I said, hey, your wife said you're going to be gone. How are you here? He said, no, a storm blew in. She says, I, I flew out there on Friday, but a storm blew in. So Saturday afternoon, they flew us all home because we couldn't go out on the seas. They were too rough to go fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just a miracle. And, and as we were visiting, we learned that even if we had had their address from eight years ago, They'd been living in this house for two months. Hmm. Okay, so they moved to this new town. They in the house for two months, and then the night before we arrive, this sister knocks on their door and hmm. finds them. And so they're all convinced, you know, hey, this is so unusual. God's hand is in this. Hmm. And so we had a wonderful reunion. It was a real blessing. Awesome. Well, it's been a blessing hearing some stories, Kim, and uh, really appreciate your time and your life of service. And um, yeah, if there's any way that somebody wants to get in touch with you is interested in this sort of stuff how can they reach out uh the easiest way is my email address it's africa at outpostcenters.org and uh, or they can go to the oci website outpostcenters www.outpostcenters.org and and they can find us
Thanks for your time, mate. Blessings on you. Blessings on you. Thanks. Adventist on fire. Go ye, a strategic board game that's more Adventist than Doug Batchelor eating haystacks on Sabbath. In Go ye, players spread the gospel by investing in spiritual gifts, mission trips, and church organizational growth while planting churches across a custom world map of 58 conferences and 10 divisions. The goal is to have the most TMI before the second coming. But will the GC president, the missionary, or the adventurepreneur get the biggest crown? Go ye to aofire.org to register your interest.